Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On February 11th, 1997, Matador Records released Brighten the Corners, the fourth proper album by the excellent American rock and roll band, Pavement. I was a huge fan of Pavement by then, collecting all of their full-length albums, EPs, and singles, and recording their various TV appearances on my parents' VCR, and then making my friends watch such things with me whenever I could. I'd only seen Pavement once live by then, but I got to see them again on their subsequent Toronto stops, including their show at the Phoenix Concert Theater on the Brighton the Corners tour. Some have called Brighton the Corners Pavement's best album. Others hear it as the beginning of the end of a band that would subsequently only release one more record, 1999's Terror Twilight. I don't know about all that, but I do know that Brighton the Corners has always meant the world to me, and so I decided to delve into it on this show. Featuring revealing insights and fuzzy recollections about things that happened more than 20 years ago, this is percussionist, shouter, keyboard player Bob Nastanovich, and drummer Steve West of Pavement discussing their album Bright in the Corners on the 373rd episode of Creative Control with your host, me, Vish Khanna. After emerging from Stockton, California in 1989, Pavement became an underground and critics' favorite thanks to the release of mysterious noise-infused singles and EPs and their undeniably stellar debut album, 1992's Slanted and Enchanted. Founded by singers and guitarists Stephen Malcolmus and Scott Canterberg, Pavement soon included drummer Gary Young, bassist Mark Eibold, and percussionist Bob Nastanovich. Malcolmus once held the job as a security guard at the Whitney Museum in New York City, where he befriended and eventually collaborated with poet David Berman and drummer Steve West in Berman's band Silver Jews. 
Gary Young was an excellent drummer, but he was erratic and eccentric, and he was eventually replaced by West in 1993, just as Pavement Star was on the rise. They began to get mainstream attention with the release of 1994's excellent Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, and quickly followed that up in 1995 with the comparably sprawling and experimental Wowie Zowie. They took that record on the road, including a midday slot on the 1995 Lollapalooza tour, which Bob Nastanovich recalls fondly. Well, Lollapalooza was, you know, wasn't bad for pavement. <laughs> I, I, it, was uh, bad for, it, was, it was bad for Lollapalooza. I saw that. Uh, that's the first time I saw pavement actually live was on that uh, the, the, the Toronto stop or the Barrie, Ontario stop. I don't even remember that one. It couldn't have been that bad. It was the first show without Sinead O'Connor, I believe. Elastica played. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, that would have been like the seventh or eighth one, I think. Yeah, no, it was fine. It was great for us. I mean, we. Okay, I mean, how great could it be to like hang out in the Jesus Lizard trailer all day? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you got the ultimate. You got the ultimate one a.m. band playing at two in the afternoon. You play at four, and then actually, the smartest thing we did on that tour was and quite frankly it was my idea vish uh <laughs> we rented two minivans in seattle i got a, a hell of a deal on two ford Windstars, and we took them on the entire tour which was like f- i'm gonna say five weeks long might have been longer and all the other bands were trapped at Lollapalooza all day because they had buses and we'd show up in these minivans and we had these like very elaborate passes with holograms and stuff like that and it was so amazing we'd show up every day and like with these two minivans often separately sometimes together and every we'd be in there and like when you tour Lollapalooza they give you like an 18 wheeler to put your gear in then our gear filled like one fifth of a tractor trailer (laughs) (laughs) whereas like every other band on the tour I think properly filled theirs I mean obviously Sonic Youth did just with their guitars and you know hole with Courtney's wardrobe cases and like (laughs) Mighty Buddy Boston's with their twenty-seven members, and you know who who else? You know Beck, all kinds of Beck was on that tour. Yeah, Beck, Joey, Joey Waronker went on played drums for REM, and um, Abby played bass, and she was in a bunch of other bands. And it was weird; those people were so pro rock. It was like, and Cypress Hill was on there. I guarantee they filled their truck out. So we actually had to like we had to fill our trucks. We bought a ping pong table. And they would they would set it up every day for us, like in a special spot. Like we would just kind of play ping pong all day. If this sounds ridiculous or possibly even made up, let the record show that drummer Steve West backs up Bob's story here. Lollapalooza carried all of our equipment, and we had requested a ping pong table, so they put that in the big trucks too. And so we'd just show up and be able to play ping pong for most of the day, and then into the evening after our performance and. I think we usually played around five or six. So it was very uh, cush touring compared to what we're normally, we were normally used to, you know, with, you know, a show every night and getting in late and all of that. We were always done by like six or seven o'clock and, yeah, the Lollapalooza tour was rigorous, but nothing compared to, you know, when we play a show, like six, seven shows a week and Lollapalooza was like five or four shows a week, so. Right. You know, we could all leave at six. And like at that point, our band was pretty much exclusively staying in Best Westerns. I was a Gold Crown Club member. And I, so I accrued a massive amount of points <laughs> on my my card to the point where I got 
a couple free sets of tires, which was came in handy. <laughs> and um, Best Western at the time was actually a really good hotel chain. We all loved it in that every location was different. Like it wasn't like going to the motel six, which was the official hotel of Jesus lizard. Um, where, you know, essentially the beauty of motel six is like, even though you're traveling all the time and you're staying in a low grade motel room, you basically are going back to the same apartment every night. Cause they're all the same. All the best Westerns had a tremendous amount of variety. So it was great. But what we got really into on that tour, we had a great cast of characters. We had Noel Kilbride, who I just saw the other day for the first time in a long time. He would have, He'd have been the guitar tech on that tour, and um, that's when we met Debbie Pastor, who became our tour manager for the last several years of payment. She was working with the Jesus Lizard at the time, and then we also met Andy Dimmick on that tour, who became like a is sort of a huge part of payment and is a big part of Steve West Band, Marble Valley, and one of my favorite human beings. And as is Deb, so we met like an incredible number of great people and got to hang out with them all the time. Like we submitted friendships and like we had a blast. So, but what we were really into was leaving Lollapalooza like an hour after we played. Sometimes we would stay if it was like pretty and like we'd watch Sonic Youth and stuff and da da da. But most of the time we would leave and do the research and head in the direction of the next town and put ourselves up in a best Western. And I'm going to say of the, let's just say 40 nights of Lollapalooza, we probably bowled in 25 different American bowling alleys. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so that became the theme of the tour. Like none of us are particularly good at bowling, but we're also not, you know, we're willing to bowl. Okay. And were sports a, 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 an important aspect of payment? Did you guys appreciate sports? Did you play sports? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm the least sporty of the guys, but uh, they talked about sports and uh, all the time. Bob's a huge sports fan. Steven's a huge sports fan. Scott uh, is too as well. Maybe I bowled not as much, but he could hold his own. Sure. And um, that's actually goes an important part of Bright in the Corners, actually, because um, Bright in the Corners was recorded in Kernersville, North Carolina at Mitch Easter's house. All Kernersville had, they had a really proper bowling alley. And we would go there every day when we recorded it. And I, I think I feel like I was there for about two weeks. We we're staying in a quality unit because they didn't have a Best Western. And um, I think I remember the eye bowled. I can't remember. But we bowled every day. But one of the most amazing um, features of the bowling alley was the number one ranked female bowler in the world bowled there. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> that's cool. Okay, and I can't remember her name, but like. She would go there every day, and we'd be bowling, like, in lane two. They kept us, like, seven or eight lanes away from her because we are the only other people bowling. And she would be bowling, like, whatever, two, 240 games or 270 games practicing. And, like, there was a banner all the way across the back of the bowling alley, like, that said, home of this woman whose name I cannot remember. I could probably find it um, on the Internet. So it was kind of amazing. It's like, And she was an amazing, like, character to watch she was i'm gonna say she was like in her mid-30s and like she's very southern and she had a very southern name and she had like a big pile of like you know kind of be she was kind of she was kind of pretty in her own sort of southern grace way she was a bowler like and she was like a bowler to the max it's like it was like kind of electrifying like we well, could look like seven lanes down like watch this like legendary bowler 
Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then also like the other, the other substantial feature of that session that I recall was it was during the Atlanta summer Olympics that we recorded it. So yeah, it would have been 96. So we were watching the Olympics all the time, getting really into it. I remember I had never really watched the Olympics before and like he got really into it. Um, and so we're watching the Olympics and, and bowling and eating tacos and then go into these bars, this one bar, they had one bar and we, and like at night, like we like to drink beer and shoot pool, but it was one of those clubs where you had to like join the club. Like you had to sign up for like, it was a dive bar, but like you had to, you had to sign up. Yeah. And there was, there was like some, there was kind of some sketchy people in there. Like, it was like sketchy. There was like people like, you know, we don't re- y'all boys aren't from around here type kind of people, you know. Right. But we were kind of in there about four or five nights a week shooting pool. We'd actually have to like take them on and stuff and, you know, play doubles with them for the uh, I believe there was I think there might have been two tables. There could have been one. So you had to compete to get the table and <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> so say it was kind of a typical pavement recording session in that just like the records we made in Memphis, like we weren't eating barbecue or, you know, we were staying, we did the records in Memphis. Wow. He's he's, I guess the one that we should sort of talk about, because uh, aside from bright in the corners, cause that was, this is sort of an era in pavement in which we'd actually become a band. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like we'd played, we played a lot of shows <clears throat> at that point, like, the project years were over that kind of ended the band really became official officially a band during watery domestic and um then heading into crooked rain which was sort of a somewhat dismantled project and that was recorded in phases and like you know that it was, it was like a new york record and like there was a certain amount of awkwardness and then wowie Sowie was the first record that we ever did where you know, Gary left the band, Gary quit. And um, Wowie's How We Did It Easy, which was, you know, familiar environs and a, a place to immediately feel comfortable. But then, like, all those songs that we, on Wowie's Howie and all the sidetracks and everything associated with it, we, we knew those songs we went in. Like, we'd been practicing. We'd played them. We'd played them live. Like, a lot of them we'd played live. Mm-hmm. And it was the same case in a lot of ways with Bright in the Corner. So I had to look... I'd have to look at the track listing to sort of figure out like what songs we already had or what songs we'd practiced in sound checks or what songs that were like working into the set. Cause that's how pavement worked. Like since we didn't live in the same town, we didn't practice. Essentially Malcolmus would be like looking forward to the next recording session. Cause he'd be bored with the songs that he was playing on that tour. And he'd be like, I mean, I got a couple of new ones. Like we can work them in there. Like, and I'd look at set lists at the time and there's like set lists that like, where the the song is called like Stereo Lab or the song is called like Sebado. Right. <laughs> and it was good. And I think a lot of bands do that because like it kind of like he'd be like, yeah, it sounds like Sebado, but it's cool. I'll make it pavement-y. Like that's, you know, the way he is. And like, um, but that's how heavily like people talk about influences. It's amazing that pavement like constantly gets the tag of being a, a band that sounds like the fall because we actually sound like about 80 bands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know mean, we sound way more like Sonic Youth or REM than we do the fall to me. Like, yeah. Um, but we always get the fall thing because of Condo for Sale and Two States and a few other songs. Like, whatever, I can hear it.
after Wowie Zowie, after the Wowie Zowie tour, do you have a, any sense or memory of what that period was like? Did you have a sense that the band was in any kind of transition after all of that activity leading into Bright in the Corner? I think we're all, all kind of doing our own things at that point. We had toured so much between the uh, previous two albums. I think that there was a little bit of a break there. Right. And then the summer came along and those guys came over here and we kind of rehearsed for the Bright in the Corners no, I think that we were just like taking time away from each other. I'm, I'm not sure when that um, um, uh, Pacific Trim thing came out either. Oh, I that's think right. That yeah. was maybe that's what we did. Bob and Stephen and I did that Pacific Trim thing at some point. So that was kind of a transition between the two. Increase mother told her daddy I roundly disagree with you. Stars to preach, all the yokels mark your teaching. But Cotton, he was just so oblivious to all their cutting please. And, and that was in um, Memphis. That was at Easley Studio. Right, right, right. Um, so I don't remember why we went down there. Maybe that was we did something Silver Jews, and then that did, fell through. So we used it to do the Pacific Trim. I can't really remember exactly. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, this. Uh, I, I guess uh, the Pacific Trim thing is is significant, and no, uh, Bob hadn't brought that up. I mean, that you're saying that was just you, Bob, and Stephen. Yeah, we. I think that what happened. We we went down there to do something with David of the Silver Jews, and that fell through. So it was just the three of us there, and we figured we didn't want to. Um, we could use the time to do some pavement stuff with just the three of us, and uh, then they wouldn't lose their booked time hmm. because they had booked time with David, and then he he wasn't able to, you know, do his bit. So. If, if I remember that correctly. I mean, I know that happened at some point, but I'm not sure if it was Pacific. I think it was Pacific Trim. No, that would make sense. And and I kind of now see, I mean, I had I'd kind of neglected that EP, and that EP meant a lot to me when it came out at the time. Uh, uh-huh. I, I really liked it, and it really showcased a kind of sense of humor, I think. Uh, that I, I, I've, following Pavement, I knew you, the band had a sense of humor, but there was something kind of loose about that. And when you think of Stereo or Shady Lane even, there's sort yeah. of there's sort of a connection there, isn't there? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, um, you know, just being me and Bob and Stephen, it was a whole different feel, and maybe a little less like who knows whether we would have used it. We probably just there was very little pressure to get something done. It was just like let's just do this. Yeah, so. yeah. Did the tour behind Wowie Zowie seem wild? Like that Wowie Zowie seems. I, I listened back to it again for the first time in a while. It's a pretty wild record in comparison to Brighton the Corners. Brighton the Corners seems a little more calm. Would you agree? Yeah, of course. I think that Bowie Zowie was a combination of uh, coming off of the Crooked Rain, and we did some of the recordings there in New York and, and as well as in Memphis. So that was a combination of like two and a half years of pretty much touring quite a lot. So I think that that was just kind of like very intense mm-hmm. and, and then we t- took some probably for the first time some ample time off to uh, come down and and then bright in the corners came along so that's probably shows a little bit of different steven might have had more time to reflect and and relax a little bit to work on the next album i, I mean when i think of 
Bright in the Corners and the Pacific Trim, they're relatively clean, would you say? Like clean-sounding records compared to what Pavement had done in the past. Yeah, I think he was branching out and, and, and trying different sounds and maybe cleaning up not many, as many guitars and stuff, overlaying and things like that. Was that articulated or is that just something you, you all just experienced at the same? Like, you're like, oh, this is just a different, like, did it feel different to you? No, no, it, it was always very organic and nothing was planned or talked about. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Mitch, like, was very easy to record with. I remember, like, West had a lot of pressure on him the first couple of days because, like, the first thing you do, like, in this sort of traditional type setting is you get the drum tracks right. And then, so there was like all the pressure was off him early and it was kind of like really pretty easy to make, to be honest with you. Tell me about working with, uh, Mitch, uh, the experience of working with Mitch Easter. Um, it was a real pleasure. He was a sweetheart, a professional. He pretty much recorded us the basic tracks and then we used his house, uh, you know, to hang out in and, and do the recording as well. But uh, and then Bryce Goggin came down to do some other like overdubs. And then they went and mixed it in a completely different place. So Mitch was there when we needed him and then kind of did yard work when uh, Bryce came into the picture. So it was a very, uh, very comfortable. We had uh, recorded at my or practiced at my house and. I have a really old house like Mitch's, so we went from one old house to an, in Virginia to one in North Carolina, which was like three or four hours away from each other. So it seemed very uh, similar places, and maybe that helped with the feel of the, the album. I can't exactly picture Mitch's house right now, but it was a nice house, and he had great equipment in there, and like all that kind of stuff that like other people would have to tell you about that, but everything worked. Everything was great. Mitch is a fantastic host and Don Dixon would come by and, um, you know, they, like, you know, of course we were somewhat intimidated by Mitch from the standpoint that I'll just speak for, for myself. I was a huge, let's active fan, mm -hmm. obviously a huge fan of all of his work with REMs. So, like to me, he'd been like a legend since I was like 14 or 15, and I'd seen him, I'd seen Let's Active, I'd road trip to see Let's Active. So, so to me, it, but it, but he's like, in a great way, sort of like Doug Easley, like, he immediately makes you feel at home and makes you feel comfortable. Okay, because like, I've heard about all these people that have to do these tours, they have to do these albums now, and they walk into a studio and they don't feel comfortable there, but mostly because like the engineers or whatever. I mean, like, I don't even know at what point, like in the music industry, like, engineers and studio guys became like famous but i guess it's been going on in rock and roll for a hundred year 50 years or something but yeah at the same time like the key to making a good record or at least being yourself as a band is to record in a place where you kind of instantly feel comfortable and thankfully mitch's house provided that both you and bob uh, invoked the 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 word comfort you mentioned that it was comfortable was was this comparably an easy record to make compared to maybe other pavement records i don't think it was any easier or any harder i just think you know uh, mitch's place was a home not like a professional super looking studio like we did in new york for the last album so you know that kind of 
high-end studio can give you a little bit more pressure and it makes you think, oh, well, I better get something done today, mm. which uh, we never really experienced uh, until the last album. So that's probably what was comfortable. And then there was uh, the Olympics were going on, so we had the sports connection there uh, during the overdubs and, and the weeks that we were, uh, two weeks we were there. So we go in the living room and watch that while things were going on in the in the rest of the house. Now, you're not a sports guy. Did you get into the Olympics? Did you get the fever? Oh, well, just sitting around Bob and listening to him talk about it. Yeah, you can get into it. <laughs> <laughs> Bob is infectious. When he gets excited, you get excited. Yeah. 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 Okay. I want to begin by asking about stereo, uh, and I'll just throw some stuff at you and see how, how it lands, because uh, the first verse uh, it seems to allude to sports uh, and the spectator sports. Pigs, they tend to wiggle when they walk. The infrastructure rots, and the owners hate the jocks with their agents and their dates. If the signature's a check, you'll just have to wait. And we're counting up the instance that we save. Tired nation so depraved. From the cheap seats, see us wave to the camera. It took a giant ramrod to raise the demon settlement. But how silver by the second verse, we're talking about Getty Lee and Rush. And then the Lone yeah. Ranger is a motif with the hi-ho silver ride. What is your take on yeah. what's going on on stereo? Do you, do you have any sense of what's, where Steven was coming from with with the ideas in this song? Well, the Getty Lee is just comedy. They're just trying to be funny and clever. What about the voice of Getty Lee? How did it get so high? I wonder if he speaks like an ordinary guy. I know him, and he does. And you're my fact-checking cub. No, it's just typical Stephen, like, one thing you got to be aware of, or the way I always, like, really sort of got it with the lyrics and how I put them together, what was a lot of the words came off the Scrabble board. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not kidding. Like, like uh, And, like, he was a scribbler, you know, like, but he would just... He's clever, you know, and, and he's, you know, and he basically would, you know, whatever he would be amused by and, you know, I think that words fit, like, you know, generally speaking, I think that I actually have to ask him and he's, a, he's probably difficult to even ask about it because it's probably something that he didn't really talk, like to talk about because he, I'm not aware of the entire Jix catalog, but um, at least in terms of his lyrics and pavement and then... I would say that he would. He was just. That's his sense of humor. And you know, Bob, um, he's it was a huge influence just in his vibrato. I mean, his uh, personality and talk. You know, the, the, he was such a big influence on the band, even though he didn't write songs or you know, he, he, and sometimes he wasn't even playing on the albums for some of them. But his personality and. Um, just general enthusiasm about the band, about uh, connecting with the fans, and his personality really, um, and sports was one of them. Yeah, and, and you know, also they would always play Scrabble, and uh, he and I would play chess sometimes, and of course the ping pong, and 
you know, anything, you know, there's a lot of time, downtime on tour when you're waiting to play. And so if you're going to play pool or whatever games, that was always somehow to entertain ourselves. When I asked Bob about some of the lyrical stuff, which, you know, obviously I, I don't expect you guys to speak too much on, on the lyrical stuff. That would be up to Stephen and, and Scott. But he mentioned Scrabble. He mentioned that, um, you know, when I was talking about some of the word choices in, in songs like Stereo or Shady Lane, for example, he suggested that, you know, you guys would play a lot of Scrabble and maybe some of that would make it into the material. Do you have any recollection of this? Um, I can see that that kept Stephen sharp on the world world of words and puns um because they were always you know coming up with new words and to be competitive with each other at scrabble it was he and and mark and steven that would play scrabble all the time and anyone else who was around that wanted to play yeah so i'm sure that that helped steven with his uh i guess his ammunition or his <laughs> all you know he, he his lyrics are always so uh, interesting and out there and different. And how did he connect this to that? Um, it's kind of like a Scrabble board, you know. We'll focus on the quasar in the mist. The Kaiser has a sis and I'm a blank one. Like qua- quasar is a very Scrabble word, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that was one they played. And he just put that one in his package so he could use it somewhere. I feel like quasar is a word you would just get luck of the draw. You just get the letters. You'd be like, oh, I can spell quasar. Like, just right away. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think they were just trying to make a cool song that was like, um, you know, keep in mind one of the awkward aspects about being in, in, in a band in the 90s was the sort of emphasis and importance of the culture of making a music video, which doesn't really, even though bands still do it, I feel like it's not as important as it was then. Like MTV was a force. Like, like you know, having your video played on MTV was a big deal back then. Yeah. A guy named John Kelsey, you'd made a couple of videos for us. Like, we just did that in one day in New York. It was just like videos were important back then. Like, I don't even know if they are now. Like, I don't know how it works. But are you saying there's a relationship to the song structure of stereo and the art of video making? Um, no, but I'm saying that like I knew it, it kind of became pretty like quickly clear that this was going to be like the single, right? And are you, you know s- what I mean? So like very much in the three minute form, very tight, very like hummable and listenable. Funny, it's yeah. funny. It's just overt. funny. Yeah, <clears throat> inst- instantly recognizable. Like obviously the Getty Lee reference like got us a lot of publicity, and like that was just not by design. That was just all circumstantial, but. Uh, I remember practicing it here at my house, trying to get the groove on it. It was a bit of a different yeah. different groove for you, wasn't it? Like mm, it had that hard that rocking part, but other than that, it was our, you know, fairly similar, I guess. Yeah, I remember friends and I would think about like that song and, and Blue Hawaiian had. I don't know how to describe those beats. I'm a drummer myself, and I can't even tell you how to describe those beats are vaguely hip hop maybe you know like yeah a, yeah was that was was that surprising that, that that was the feel for that song did that come about organically or was that sort of a direction no i think that was organic yeah yeah that's probably what i just came up with at the on the spot and maybe maybe that was a little bit of a hip hop uh influence going on there or that kind of groove uh i don't know maybe so I like both Blue Hawaiian and, and, and the stereo song. Uh, yeah. I think they turned out pretty good. Controlled by gamma light. Controlled by gamma light. 
people, New York and California. Earth people, I was born on Jupiter. Earth people, New York and California. Earth people, I was born on Jupiter. Earth people, New York and California. Earth people, I was born on Jupiter. Earth people, New York and California. Earth people, I was born on Jupiter. Did you guys listen to much hip hop? I remember seeing Pavement on that tour, and Bob would invoke Cool Keith. Uh, yeah, and Dr. Octagon. Yeah, that's what we were listening to. So maybe that that was part of the influence, a subtle uh, part of the influence for that, and the kind of the rapping, singing that Stephen did. It could be definitely, um, you know, picked up from because we all like Cool Keith and his lyrics and his take on on music. So. I was really into him, that one album. I, I don't know if Matador put him out or not, but we were, I think, I remember Eyeball playing him a lot. So uh, that caught on, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that had something to do with that feel. Do you have any take on what is going on in this song? Because it's, a, it's sort of a silly song. Uh, there's certainly, as a Canadian, I mean, the, the fact that Getty Lee is mentioned kind of... You know, it raised some eyebrows up here. I'm not going to lie to you, Steve. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> do, you, do you have any sense of where the silliness of this song kind of comes from? No, I really don't. Yeah. I mean, I think that Stephen was probably going, you know, I've been here, I've been there on these other albums, and maybe I'm just going to turn up the silly a little bit yeah. for these other songs and try to make them a little bit more uh, commercial or poppy. Right. Okay. And would, kind of like the cut your hair, an extension of cut your hair, but you know, down another road. I don't know. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, you know, you have a lot of that. You know, uh, you know, wanting to be on the radio and being a hit, and we weren't. So it was maybe poking fun at himself and at the band yeah. at the same time. Oh yeah, that's true. The chorus. I never really even delved into the chorus. It's it's sort of like the it's one of the most disconnected songs. It feels like in terms of any kind of narrative you kind of the verses are their own thing and then there's just a guy saying he's on the on the stereo yeah (laughs) which is it's all well and good i love it it's it's an unlikely hit song in some ways yeah and what drugs was he on when he was writing that i don't know (laughs) the only people in our band that could play their instrument and sing at the same time were obviously malchmas Canberg and West can West can West can definitely drum and sing at the same time. Right. Okay. <clears throat> so West was really important for he actually did it during his era in the band, which is somewhat overlooked. He actually did a massive amount of live background vocals. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that happen. Yeah. Yeah, he's really good. Plus, he's a great front man. That's all besides the point. Like West, like West, contributions to payment are immense. You know, because he would actually like especially like if it wasn't for West like. I'm not really sure if Crooked Rain ever would have happened because all those songs, the only two people living in the same town ever in the history of pavement, really, aside from the Stockton years, were West and Malcolmus, you know, lived in the same neighborhood in Brooklyn and they worked on Crooked Rain for months before anybody else participated in it. Did they both work at the museum? Oh, yeah, yeah. But I think this is like post museum for both of them because, like, I think that, you know, by that. At that point, like I'd moved to Louisville, Camberg was in Sacramento, I believe, or no, San Francisco, mm-hmm. and and this is before Wes. See, Wes got the house where he lives now, the country outside of Lexington, Virginia. Got that after a Lollapalooza, right? Okay. 
I mean, there's, yeah. The, so the, like, yeah, the first two songs on this record are both funny. I'd say like Stereo and Shady Lane are both memorable, catchy. I think I've told you I've, I've I continue to sing these songs as lullabies to my kids because uh, they have that kind of they have like a jingly jangly memorable playful kind of phrasing and feeling to them uh yeah kids like stereo kids like stereo and they like summer babe kids really like stereo like yeah like like, well it's like a rap um, it's it's like a rap it's almost like a rap song it's corny and it's fun and like (laughs) i knew i know steven would get really tired of it i think he like i think he sort of found it like kind of cute he still the last time I saw the Jicks, he they did it. Yeah, no, he'll do it. You know what I mean? Like he's not against doing it. Yeah, like, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I remember playing it on Conan O'Brien. My next guests are here to perform a song from their new album, Bright in the Corners, and they'll be appearing this Sunday as a part of the big Tibetan Freedom concert on Randall's Island, right here in New York City. Please welcome Pavement. And the thing that stands out to me most about that day, you you spend an, an alarming amount of time in a, at a TV studio when you do these things. Like, people don't realize that when they see a band on, like, The Tonight Show, they don't realize that the band's actually been there for 10 hours, and <laughs> which is kind of weird. But I remember that Mark, on the way up to the to go in there and do that, he unfortunately suffered an incredibly bad crick in his neck so the whole the whole time i was just i was worried about his neck because he was in some pain he's really tough he was in some pain and um but stereo was just like um the great thing about that song is whenever we played it during that era and then even in 2010 it's like it just it's one of those it's a true pavement crowd pleaser so it was always a joy to like see it on the set list and knew that know that like it's one of those songs where we could kind of get the crowd back on our side even if we did like an average version of it. It was easy to record. Hmm. Yeah, we already had it, and it's not that difficult. It was easy for pavement. We actually worked quite a bit each day on the songs. I'm gonna say like maybe an average of four hours a day on the music, which is hmm. not a lot for most bands, but I think I think we booked in like 10 days or two weeks there, so it didn't, you know, like, we're never one of those bands, like a lot of bands that like, okay, we've got 20 hours, let's make music for 16 of them. <clears throat> like, it's always like, the schedule is always like, you're sort of there, but like, you're actually only playing music like a fifth of the time right you know you work you know you're just it's more like we're all hanging out and having a good time like yeah and that's just because and i think steven you know like and scott like on his songs they actually had to work a little bit harder than us like anyways like i think the point is you think it's pretty well known that i had always had it pretty easy (laughs) (laughs) blinded with a chancer we had oysters and dry lancers and the check when it arrived we went dutch 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 a redder shade of neck on a wider shade of trash And this emery board is giving me a rash I'm flat out You're so beautiful to look at when you cry Alright, we're going to move 
on to Shady Lane. Uh, Shady Lane is a beautiful song. Uh, it's a it's a classic, I think, for Pavement fans. And, and what is your take on, on Shady Lane exactly? What do you make of this song? I think at that time we were all doing different things and kind of growing up and growing to maybe not, you know, growing beyond the, like, the beginnings of the band. And maybe that was his take on um you know what he wanted or whether he wanted talk reflecting about a a home place or something and i think he was uh in the midst of moving to portland and i had just moved here to virginia and Mm -hmm. bob was in louisville so i kind of always looked at it as 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 that you know kind of the uh the extension of range life and that narrative that he plays he played out yeah, it's a. There, you guys were in your own way a, a very reflective band, weren't you? I mean, you were kind of thinking about yourselves and and your generation. It felt like you know. I don't mean to put too much of a weight on your shoulders in retrospect, but it did feel like people of my generation. I'm younger than you guys, but I, I we all. We, it seemed relatable as as abstract as the music was. It seemed quite relatable. Yeah, I think he he had a good way of like reflecting what was going on around him and in society in a very obscure way but especially that crooked rain album the california feel even though we recorded it mostly in new york and he had been in new york for the past couple of years um it really has a california feel to it yeah it does for sure you mentioned that you know you guys had a break a little bit of a break after touring crooked rain wowie zowie just touring a lot and you took a little bit of a break was it grueling being in pavement ahead of bright in the corners um i think we were all feeling our uh you know tired in the band the band was growing older and yeah so you know as any marriage you go through bumps and stuff and we were probably hitting our bumps around then relationship wise and you know you go through it and you're thinking, oh, maybe this one will be something where we're a big hit. And I think by then, all of that big hit uh, expectations or beliefs that might happen were pretty much like, no, this is not going to happen. Let's just go and be a, not worry about it. Mm-hmm. So maybe that is alluding to your your more mellow feels, like don't worry about it, just play what you want. Yeah, you guys became sort of more jammy, it feels to me, on this record. Yeah, I guess so, a little bit. I don't know, it's hard for me to tell. It's a weird, con- I know jammy has a weird connotation, but they're, they're, you spread out a little. Yeah, the songs are a little longer, There's like it just feels like a little more laid back on some level, mm-hmm. somehow. I yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a little more classic rock is what I always read in the reviews, and I can hear that. Yeah, yeah, I can hear that too, I can hear that too. In the in the live configuration, you and Bob would play drums together. Bob would do a few different things, but you'd play drums together. Did you record drums together, like playing together? Yeah, in that in that uh, recording session, he was in in the room with us, and he had his drum kit and and mine there. But I think they were able to, you know, se- separate the sounds, so um, it wouldn't be so much bleed. But yeah, you can hear his drums in some of those songs. Yeah, okay. as well as as mine. So. Yeah, but you can definitely tell when he's playing his, like there are certain sections and quieter sections where you hear something he's doing. Oh, okay. Um, as well as mine or the percussion and keys and things like that that he added to the mix. That was a, that, for some people, that, that, you, you mentioned classic rock, that's kind of a Grateful Dead thing, almost. 
Yeah, and maybe not. <laughs> neither one of us are anywhere of the same caliber. Caliber, Grateful Dead drummers, but uh, maybe on a little bit more of a junior <laughs> side. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a bit. No, of people uh, love to compare us to the Dead, especially in California. A same attitude towards touring and playing and putting out records. I think uh, I admire that about the Dead. Yeah, and then the and the fans that though we didn't have the huge fan base like that, but they were very loyal and uh, would put up with our good and bad shows. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I never thought of that. And you, do you find that the the dead have swung back around to being sort of beloved more than they were? I feel like they were derided at the time that you guys were, say, touring behind Bright in the Corners. But it feels like they've, there's some love for them now. Yeah, I would think so because they did a lot of great stuff. Yeah, and you know, you get sick of something when you it's all around you all the time, and they've been doing it forever. Yeah, but uh, you know what they did shines through in the long run because there was such a lot of great material as well as the not so great material yeah and you worked with spike jones around this time oh no yeah and spike jones made shady lane and he'll tell you that it's the worst thing he's ever done like oh really he was yeah he was a big pavement fan and he wanted to make us a good video and of course you know his career was you know definitely kicking off at the time and stuff and like he was excited to work with us and like that was by far the most expensive video we ever did. I think the budget was definitely over 40 grand if I had to guess, which was a boatload. And he just like, I think he, I don't mind it, but he looked at it as like total fail. Like, The end of Shady Lane is an instrumental, J versus S. Uh, do you have any insight about where that came from or why that's part of this song? I don't even know if we played that at the same time. I think he did. I think we did play that at the same time. But, you know, I don't think it was tacked on post, you know, live recording of it in the studio. I think that was just something he wanted to put on there, and we did that. Okay. I'd have to listen to it again to make sure, but... Uh, Always like that. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's, it's it's sort of it's sort of fleeting, but it's there. Yeah, it's like it could have gone on farther, but it's fleeting. Do you have any insight as to what J versus S might mean? No, <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> were you were you a band that communicated much to each other? I mean, I know Stephen. Uh, it's by the sounds of it, Stephen would make a lot of these decisions, maybe name things. Uh, did, did you ever talk about these things with each other? No, no. <laughs> He never talked about it. You giggle if it was something that was funny or very, very witty. J versus S. He might have. I might have heard what he was talking about then. Yeah, but I don't. I don't remember what it was. I think actually J versus S was just like a natural transition, like where we actually found like a really good groove when we recorded that version of Shady Lane, and Malcolm sort of in an impromptu fashion decided to like kind of jam it out a little bit. That's where the J versus S song comes from, the slash bit, and then. Um, I don't know who J is. I don't know who S S is, but I've had to guess that J J might be J Mascus. Oh, and the S is okay. Stephen. 
No, I don't know who that would be, but I I just know who. It's definitely not Steve Shelley. You better find your way out. You better learn how to run. You better walk away and leave the angles for the shills. Well, I've been thinking for days about the means and the ways that I could hate all I touch. to sing, he couldn't teach me to love all the above easy talking, border blocking transport is a range we're going to move on to one of the uh one of the standout tracks on this record, Transport is Arranged. Transport is Arranged would definitely be, you know, not only one of my favorite songs on the record, but probably one of my favorite. If somebody asked me what my favorite pavement song is of all time, that's actually it. And then there's actually a really cool live version of it on YouTube from a concert that we played in Italy that when we showed up at four in the afternoon, like the stage hadn't even been built yet. So we didn't even know if this thing was going to come off. And then we somehow they threw it all together it was very diy and there's a couple thousand people there it was in the middle of nowhere in italy and it was good but transport is arranged is as a payment song that worked pretty easily in the studio and worked live and i guess it's, i would have to call it a very overlooked payment song do you have any recollection yeah, think- of where this song came from I have no idea. They're his songs. He wrote, you know, he wrote the lyrics. So right. it could be something about his childhood. I don't know. It's a curious phrase. Transport is arranged, which you know, again, I'm not, I'm not uh, looking so much about interpreting the songs themselves as much as your experience, uh, you know, recording them. So forgive me for delving into it too much. But it is a weird. It's it's a it's a sort of a spooky song, and uh, that's my that's my that's always been my take on. It. There's a couple of kind of spooky songs on this record. There's a lot of paranoia, I think, on the record um, uh-huh. that I that I pick up on, and uh, and then also, like you said, that kind of restlessness, the kind of like coming of age, but leaving maybe your twenties. Uh, which is that where you guys would have been? Leaving, you're entering your thirties, probably. Yeah, probably he was probably turning thirty around then. Yeah, yeah. Did 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 you kind of did you feel that? You mentioned like I think we talked about this actually. Like it did feel like things were shifting a little bit underneath the band. You people were moving away and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, you can look at the timeline, and it makes sense. You know, that was like the fourth album. They've been together since '89, and you know, you do your things, and you know it's only going to be so long, or else you're going to be like a band that goes on forever and ever. And we're, we knew we weren't going to be that. That's what we weren't about. So, yeah, it was kind of natural. Yeah. I think. I think he he wanted to go and play with other people that might have been more proficient, but. And he has, and he's done great. So, yeah, happy for him. But to me, it's a totally natural thing. Yeah, there's a lot more keyboards on this record, or at least, I mean, there's been keyboards on all sorts of pavement records. Uh, but I feel like, like this song, "Transport Is Arranged," begins with like an organ sound. And Stephen, yeah. um, was that mostly Stephen doing that stuff, doing that playing? Yeah, he he would play that. Um, 
that was probably Mitch Easter's influence with the um, instruments he had in his place. He had lots of cool different instruments in his house, um, keyboards, and Stephen was like that. If there was something in the studio that he he never played before, he would incorporate it into the song. In that last album, there was a banjo part. Somebody had just brought a banjo, like a mini banjo, and he put it into the song, and it worked. So he's very off the cuff that way, and a lot of times it was very magical, and it was appropriate. And it also extended the sound of the band so you didn't get in too much of a rut of the same sound all the time. Yeah. You mentioned you guys practiced at your house. Were there songs on this record that emerged at Mitch's place? Like you mentioned that Stephen would look around the studio and find something that interested him and then incorporate it into a song that I presume wasn't there before uh, when you came into the studio, before you came into the studio. Were there sort of pure studio creations on this record that you can recall? Uh, I doubt it. He usually has stuff up his sleeves no matter what. He might not have played them off with us. We were very slack about preparing for stuff. Oh, you were? Live and albums. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we never practiced, so... I mean, we did come here to to practice some of the songs, so we probably had six of them where we knew what we were doing, and the rest you just kind of had to learn in the studio. Yeah. Um, That's the way we did it. Yeah. So Sometimes it made magic, and sometimes it was okay. Okay, well, we'll go with this. Magic. I think uh, we should move on to date with IKEA, which is I, th- I think it's it's not arguable to say it's one of Scott's strongest songs. Would you agree? Sure. Yeah, he's he's got a couple up there that are real solid. Yeah. Not I wouldn't call pop songs, but real straightforward and uh, catchy. Yeah. This is a record where he invokes a couple of brands in his songs: the Volkswagen Passat, and then in this case, Date with Ikea. Do you have any sense of where he was coming from with a, a song like this? We all, I always thought, maybe we all, all thought it too, I don't know. But um, it was, he had bought a house in California and was trying to, um, you know, furnish it. So I think maybe it came from the ideas like they had a date to go to Ikea. That's what we always thought. But of course, it, I'm sure it's not just about that, but it's the name that comes out of the activity that, you know, seemed to fit. So, Do you think he was resisting uh, the kind of suburban aspect of that, going to Ikea? No, I don't think so. I think it was reflecting on it. He's always always been about uh, city planning 
and um, architecture and landscapes. Yeah. So I think he was just trying to draw his own pictures. So in Scott, is there any distinction between how Scott and Stephen would bring songs to the band? Because you mentioned Stephen would come in with some pretty pretty solid ideas that he would modify if, if he felt compelled to. Was Scott similar or, or was it different? Scott showed up at this recording session in Kernersville with a game plan. We all sort of knew his songs. We all had like a, a you know a good amount of confidence to date with Ikea. And Scott is a lot easier to record with than Steve um, because his, I think basically his songs are easier to drum on. And Scott is also like, that's good, dude. That's good enough. You know, mm-hmm. one of those kind of guys So like, that would have been fast. I think mostly Scott would kind of come in with a riff or something and he'd build from that. Um, yeah, and then kind of build the song in the studio. I, I do remember a lot of his songs we kind of, he and I would play just the two of us and then they would build from that. And, I, you know, and then it would turn out to be what it was. And I, I don't remember him like singing into a microphone, but he might have you know, to kind of give me directions on how, what was the chorus and the verses and stuff. Was this a, was this a song that you remember coming together relatively easily or was it uh, tricky? No, I think it came together pretty easy after, you know, Stephen's songs, he would have so many and they were a little lot trickier. Scott's were, it was always a little easier for me to like, okay, this is Scott's song and we get in a groove and, and like I said, kind of build from, build from a groove and um, take it from there. Yeah. Okay. When Stephen had more of an idea, maybe of what exactly he wanted, and so that was something to achieve rather than just kind of going with the flow with with Scott. It was just two different people working with two different people. Yeah, because you came to the band uh, later than I guess you would have been the last addition to the band, frankly, uh, uh, of the of the you know the the most well known configuration on some level. Uh, do do you have a bit of detachment from the band in some ways? Do you feel like? Uh, ownership over pavement in some way. I, I, I notice you're deferring a lot to Stephen and Scott, and that's fine. These are their songs ostensibly, but you are in the band, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was in the band, but like I say, I played the drums, and you you said I came later, and I did. So I I think that they experienced the kind of like that early early hysteria when you go from just being couple guys playing together to being known and written about and i jumped in after all of that happened so they probably the rest of the guys have a more whole experience than with me than me i didn't experience that i was a replacement so so to speak so i just have a different take on it okay but yeah i love the Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Band probably just as much as, as they do. Was it weird for you to jump into a band that like, you jumped in when it was starting to go nuts, relatively nuts? Like, did that, was it weird? It was hard to fill Gary's shoes, I would say. He was such a beloved character and a great musician. But in terms of the the guys in the band, um, I know, I've known Bob since he was like 12 or 13 or 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And I'd worked with Stephen at the Whitney so, and been playing music with him for about a year, uh, different jam things at, uh, with the Jews at my, um, loft in New York. So it wasn't that hard. Okay. And, you know, well, like I said, we didn't really practice, so it wasn't like I was left out. I kind of knew some of those Crook of Rain songs more than anybody else. Cause we had been, he and I, Stephen had been working on them. So when we finally got around to playing them, we were all really learning how to play them together, so. Okay, all right. Well, I, I I was actually referring more to the like the kind of hysteria, like that attention that you were talking about that they had to deal with all of a sudden. You kind of came in just as, you know, magazine profiles, video stuff, all that stuff seemed to be really going by the time you joined the band. Right. So it, it, as part of my identity, I'm probably maybe a little less because I didn't. It was at a certain level when I became, you know, I was in the band, whereas they went from being just the guys in the band to, you know, pictures and yeah, and growing through it and seeing how it changed and morphed to a certain level. When I got in it, we were at a certain level, and we pretty much stayed that way until 2010. Right. And then we all of a sudden were much bigger for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I think absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah, maybe so in this case. begin and type slowly both sort of fit as i was talking about before like the vibe of the record in terms of us being more i'm not going to say laconic or like you know we've always gotten the tag of being slacker rock for our work ethic but like these were actually like very laid back pavement songs like i'm not sure what was going on over there but like these guys you know malcolm especially like it's almost like reflected like the fact that okay we've been around now for a while and like 
we're not lazy, but like we can kind of do things on our own terms. talking earlier about uh, sort of the calmer aspect of Bright in the Corners in relation to some of the other uh, records that preceded it, but th- this Ulta Begin has a screaming part where Stephen just kind of screams the end of the song. Do you know what I'm referring to? Where he's just like, rah, rah, rah. he's like a roaring at the end. Yeah. It's a real release, and it's a bit, like, there's a little bit of that on stereo, where the chorus is like him kind of screaming, but... Do you have any <laughs> any recollection of how you how you all arrived at, at that being a part of that song of him just kind of you know basically doing this noise vo- vocal uh, noise? He would do his vocals usually the very last thing, either in the studio where we recorded or even in the mixing studio. A lot of times, I mean, all the times we go mix somewhere else, so he could have done that whole vocal at a completely different. You know, not even at uh, in North Carolina at Mitch's. Oh. I don't remember. Oh, you you because, don't you don't remember that? Um, no, I don't remember him recording that, uh, screaming like that. I remember on Wowie Zowie one of the songs where he was screaming a lot, and we thought it was cool. But that was, you know, he we he didn't usually do his vocals while we were doing the basic tracks because he would change the lyrics and he would you know he might do a scratch vocal and sometimes they keep that, but. Um, I think a lot of times he would uh, polish it up in the mixing studio. Yeah, yeah. Did did Ulta Begin evolve much when you played it live? Did that screaming part change? Did any of it change? Um, all the screaming parts, a lot of times Bob would take over so Stephen wouldn't lose his voice. Ah, okay. Or Stephen wouldn't scream so he wouldn't lose his voice and it just wouldn't scream. But yeah, our songs always kind of morphed that way in small ways. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I particularly love the um, set of lyrics in Type Slowly, which is, you know, easily one of the best songs on the record. Get up early in the bed for you morning come so.
there's a quite a bit of synthesized sound per, uh, keyboards and stuff on throughout this record is that is did you formulate that i know you you get credited with playing that stuff but i played some of it but i can't play very well so um and i'm sure i added some bits but um i had a nord lead i bought i bought one back then i didn't really know what it was but will will oldham's little brother paul had told me about it i went out and bought one in indiana so it was there and like we were playing it was like a toy like none of us could really work out what was going on with it but we fiddled with it all the time and then mitch had some good stuff mitch had some good old organ type things like <clears throat> he had some good things like i think so like when you show up to record in a studio one thing that you're definitely going to do is like take advantage of what's there especially if you can play and um so yeah malcolm's like he would have added like anything well played hmm. on keyboards <laughs> in the context of talking about type slowly i just want to ask you if you guys talked about politics much at the time there's a lot of like like i said there's like there's some paranoia there's some I, I i detected a fair amount of spy stuff and like kind of like detectives and espionage and things like that and and type slowly has a little bit of a political undercurrent, I think, in a weird way. Uh, did you guys talk much about stuff like that? No. Um, Stephen was always reading, so he might have been reading some spy novels at the time, and that influenced his writing or his thinking. But no, we didn't talk about that stuff. Trolls in the Glen are consorting again. The, liber the liberals say they don't exist, but I know they do. That almost feels like something that could be happening now. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like mistrust, misinformation, fake news. Like it just feels very prescient in some way. Right. What's the one about the air? They all sell the air to us. I don't know if it's off that album or not, but the same kind of thing. Yeah. Or kind of a slight on capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you, you were you all kind of aligned with were there disagreements about the songs? I just was curious. Like, was did it was would you ever question what Scott or Stephen were writing about, or or provoke them to talk about it a little bit? No. Uh, if we thought something was stupid, I'm sure that somebody would um, poke fun of him, but not say it straight to his face, but just like start repeating the little part over and over again. That might annoy him. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I mean the guy's a craftsman. I mean he's amazing. So yeah, and, and Scott can write some good stuff as well. So. Um, you know, in any band, you're teasing each other about, uh, you know, your lines and, and the songs, but that's more of just a family and, and tease rather than a comment on politics or anything like that. Right. Was Type Slowly particularly fun to play for you? Yeah, I love playing that one. It's fun. And Bob and I got to play together um, well on that, so it had a good Rolling Stones feel to me. Oh, Rolling Stones. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, that, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that thought that, but it had a good classic rock feel to it. It does, but it, it actually, <laughs> there's a live version or two kicking around where the guitar, it actually reminds me, I don't know if you're going to take this the right way or not, but it vaguely, vaguely reminds me of The Doors. Uh-huh. Well, that could work. Is that bad? Do you, do you hate me? I didn't mean to... No, no, I was a big Doors fan when I was a kid, so... Yeah, me too, me too, and that's why just some of the guitar tones and some of the live recordings I've heard kind of remind me of Robbie Krieger. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, it's just uh -huh. this kind of snaky, you know, haunting lines, you know? And it, yeah. it has that... It, this seems like a very California song to me somehow. Yeah.
Embassy Row was a banger for this record. This is kind of like our cream of gold or something. Like it was like uh, aggro. <laughs> it was fun, you know. I think he even tries to get a little political with the lyrics, but you'd have to ask him about that. He seems he seems on this record to be interested in spies. There's a lot of like, spy kind of like paranoia stuff that I was. I don't know what was going on, or if you have any insight. Glad to see he likes the word spies. He's saying that a lot. It's just like uh, my my friend Vicky Wheeler correctly pointed out years ago that like Malcolmus has when he can't find any words to sing, he always just sings that he's waiting. Like you'll hear that I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. You always hear him say that like waiting, like waiting for what? It's like I just think he just likes to sing that verb, but. but yeah, no, spies, like, spies! Like, you know, it's the kind of thing that sounds good with his voice. Like, he yeah. just goes, spies! You know, like, it's been there for, it's been there since, like, the early days. Yeah, but you I know, think there's, like, a lot of, like, weird, paranoid, like, foreign, you know, like, Embassy Row, there's kind of this sense that something is sort of underfoot, you know? I don't know, it's just, like, a, almost like a criminal element to some of the songs I found, and I wondered where that was coming from. Well, I'm sure he could probably be pretty paranoid, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was premonitions of what would be happening, like in, you know, in the last five years. But yeah, that's a fun one to play. I think that he derived that Embassy Row. Maybe had something to do with his uh, time at UVA. Oh, at the university. It might be, or it could be uh, Embassy Row in Washington D.C. But for some reason, I think it has something to do with UVA. Why do you think that? There might be a street called, no, that wouldn't make sense. Embassy Row. I don't know. I don't know. I just think <laughs> that's popping up in my head about it. <laughs> so. Again, this is one of these songs that reminds me of kind of international diplomacy. You mentioned possibly spy novels or something. It does feel like that. Like There's like danger lurking around the corner uh, on Embassy Row. That's what I feel like. Yeah. And and it comes across as one of the most punk rock moments on the record, if if I may. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, Stephen loves his punk. He's a punk at heart. (laughs) Welcome to my friends. This house is a home, and a home's where I belong. Where the feelings are warm, and the foundations are strong. If my soul has a shape, well, then it is an ellipse. And this slap is a gift, cause your cheeks have lost their luster. You know your cheeks have lost their luster. You know your cheeks have lost their luster. Uh, we talked a little bit about Blue Hawaiian, which is, a, I think, a play on Blue Hawaii. Is that, am I wrong? Uh, Blue Hawaiian, I think that was a name I came up with. and I, Maybe, I can't remember. Blue, I think that was one of the song titles I came up with that Stephen liked, and he kept it. What, were you, are you an Elvis person? I love Elvis. And I can't remember. I think it might have been, you know what I think it was? It was a um, drink oh. that we had at the Tibetan Freedom Concert in San Francisco at this bar with all the superstars from the Tibetan Freedom Concert. And, you know, I might have been talking about that or that stuck in my mind and or his mind. And um, that's why we named it that. Did you it guys... just was yeah. a phrase, you know, that you were like, okay, that's a good name. Use that. Okay. And, I mean, he actually invokes aloha in the lyrics. Aloha means goodbye. And also hello, it's in how you inflect. Put the bark in the dog and you've got a guardian. 
When the capital's S, it is followed by a T, and it's probably me. And the tones are grouped in clusters. You know the tones are grouped in clusters. You remember, remember that Aloha means goodbye and also hello. It's like a little educational moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For those of us who haven't been to Hawaii, you're like, oh, is that what? It, I didn't know that. And then you go to the internet, and you're like, oh, he's right. It totally. It does mean hello and goodbye. It's in how you inflect. Actually, you got a lot of guff on this record. I remember when, I believe Spin Magazine reviewed it. Um, the woman who reviewed it was particularly put off by Blue Hawaiian, where he says, um, this slap is a gift because your cheeks have lost their luster. Right. Okay, so, like, so she sort of like kind of attacked him is that is that being sort of like a misogynist type statement which to be i mean just to be flat out honest that's it's pretty off base i mean like, yeah <laughs> i mean it's just like there's first of all you're assuming genders and it's just like you know who knows what he was doing like i think that his gift as a lyricist is that you know whether they be non sequiturs or like you know, however he, however he likes to say it, it's like, I guess, you know, one of his heroes being Stipe and, you know, and of course Lou Reed. And then you think of like things that he really loved as well, like all the Kraut rock bands, whether it be Amandul or Popova or, of course, Canon Faust. Like mm-hmm. having to explain your lyrics and having your lyrics be sort of like, you know, Dylan-esque or dare I say like one of our peers, Berman-esque where he's actually like trying to actually say something. Um, I think that, you know, in somewhat intentionally, like, you know, most of his lyrics like should really never be dissected because they were just sort of there to amuse and he would change them all the time to entertain himself it was just <laughs> and like he, he's also very self-conscious about his singing voice which i think he's never really thought of as the strength of his game um he actually had to you know kind of teach himself to sing throughout his career because he's he's a good singer but he's not what you call a gifted singer well, and, he, he uh, does show off a lot of vocal range on this record, a lot of high high singing, and there's uh, the part in Old to Begin where it's just screaming, uh, you know, just sort of showing off his... And a lot of the B-sides on uh, off of this record, there's a lot of yelling and screaming, and it, it's interesting, it's fascinating to me, because I, I think I've always loved his singing, I, and I think he's a great singer myself. Well, no, I mean, I think he's a good singer, but like... You got one one aspect of his of his singing is that he made sure that with his sets of lyrics that he was singing words that he could sing. Yeah, I mean, so that was when, that was when, actually a factor in his lyrics, which it probably isn't for a lot of other lyricists. Like he would like the way his voice sounded singing certain words. So if you think about like probably the best set of lyrics on this record, perhaps aside from stereo shit, I mean, the best. One of his best sets of lyrics is "Transport is Arranged." Absolutely, yeah. And like, and like, those are all words that he can sing really well. And like, again, like you know, I hate to always do this to people when we're talking about 
Steven specifically is like, I don't know how, and it would always confuse Gary when Gary was in the band. Like, I don't, he, Gary would always be like, I have no idea how this kid comes up with this crap. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So like, and he'll tell you too, like, it was just fun for him. Like he knew when he was like, he knew when he stumbled upon something good, whether it was when it came to, came to words and lyrics, like guitar is like so easy for him. It's like easier for him than like me making a grilled cheese sandwich right now. I mean, like he's a freaky guitar player, you know, I, I think he's, he, he's one of the great, <clears throat> great guitar players of all time that I've come across. I think. Yeah. I mean, like, and I think that, I mean, there's no doubt about that for me, but like, um, but that you, that's, see, that's the aspect of being in a band that comes really easy to him. And I think that that's sort of like, you know, from what I've heard of the Jicks, like seeing them live and then the records that I know and the songs that I know is like, you know, he does really strut his stuff on guitar in that band a lot. Yeah. Um, which is good. And he does, he very much does so in pavement. He very, very much does so on this particular record. And then, I mean, in fact, like he had to teach me, like I had to play the blue Hawaiian keyboard part live and it was very tricky for me. Like, even though like it would not be tricky for like a seven year old knew how to play piano. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I actually had to like tape keys and like, I'd always be like really happy when that song was over and I didn't really mess it up because it was actually like kind of an intricately played keyboard solo for me. Mm. Yeah. Much more comfortable with two drums and a cymbal or maracas or whatever. And we talked a bit about this groove business with stereo and, and blue Hawaii. And, uh, and I think we covered it rather well, but did it feel like a departure in some way to, to, to play these kinds of beats? No, I think that those were more, my more influential from on my part, those two songs specifically, that little beat I did just because it worked, you know, Stephen was, was something worked. He would be happy. You know, yeah. and if it wasn't working, he'd tell you it wasn't working. So when it was working, you just went with it. And I can tell you that definitely, you know, it was something I just started playing along with, you know, his rhythm. So, yeah. Do you, do you have uh, drummers you looked up to at the time? Like, were, there, were there the drummers that influenced you in particular when you played in Pavement? There was more bands that I loved rather than specific drummers. You know, I always admire a great full band rather than you know, a specific uh, musician, you know. So I loved Echo and the Body Man and the Smiths and the Replacements. Um, I guess Tom Waits. Yeah. Pogues. Um, so, and like the classic rock, Rolling Stones. So Yeah. You, you mentioned Stephen and we've talked about Stephen and, and, and uh, Scott bringing songs to the table. Do you... Do you are you selling yourself short a little? Did you have a compositional role that you're not telling me about in in any of these songs per se? Like you mentioned, you came up with some beats. Uh, and well, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, it was usually you know you're just playing along, and but I wouldn't say I came up with any. You know, I was just there to play with everybody else. You know, and everyone I think uh, contributed quite equally, no matter what their role was. Yeah. Okay. You know, whether they were uh, in the initial recordings or uh, putting their stuff 
afterwards when they're doing overdubs and and adding bass parts or you know percussion with Bob or his screams or whatever it was it's not a very um, traditional way of doing it but it seemed to work with us trying to do this like kind of corny thing where like we try to like harmonize and everybody tries to sing and like we are underused was sort of like a comment by the lead singer on the rest of the band sort of chiding us in a way like a kind way of putting instead of we are underused i think it was his own way of like telling the band like that we were sort of useless okay <laughs> so read into that what you want okay I'd always felt that, like, that, like, you know, when we played it live, especially, be like, we'd be like singing "We Are Underused," and like, it was kind of like, Malcolmus did not hesitate at any point to like drop insults on the rest of us that we had to sort of like all take on the the chin, and I think that like "We Are Underused" is actually along that vibe. I like that song a lot. Maybe, I don't know, maybe that's his take on, you know, where we were as a band at a time. We're underrated or, you know, that's a char- characters. I think he would put himself into a lot of characters and, and go with with feelings and that way. Yeah, I, I, sp- I spoke with Bob about this, and I always viewed this song as a, a song kind of... I, I, I Earlier I'd said I felt like you guys... We're really good at reflecting your cohort of people like in your generation. And I always thought We Are under, Underused was kind of about that. But Bob thought it actually had sort of a mean-spiritedness and that it was about the band itself and that Stephen was... Stephen, separate, was kind of talking about the band and the feeling in the band that you were underused, <laughs> which I had never occurred to me before. There's nothing about the lyrics that suggests that or anything. Does that ring true to you in any possible way no not not to me i didn't take it that way i took it more as we were underappreciated as a as a group um rather than like as i guess musicians within the group but yeah i don't know i mean there's a whole song about how your drummer steve west can't drum well steve he cannot drum 
Right, which is so unfair. I thought that was really mean. And I think that, that was sort of taken the same way. Like, poor Steve West has taken a lot of abuse and probably more abuse than anybody in pavement. That's, and, and that's entirely unfair. Entirely unfair. You're going to have to ask him. That's his lyric. I was away um, on my honeymoon, and I think that they were just at a loss, maybe, to what they, he was going to sing. So he started singing that. And they kept it. We never, I don't think it was on the album. No, it's a B side. Yeah. Yeah, it ended up as a B side. So I'm trying not to take it personally. <laughs> um, he takes the piss out of a lot of people, and I'm sure I've taken the piss out of him at times, too. So, uh, Do you play on that song? Oh, yeah. Oh, you play on that song, too. You just did it. Okay. I always, it's a weird, it's a, imagine me being, you know, 17 or whatever I was, or 20. I think I was 20, and hearing that yeah. song, and I'm like, I, look, I, I had it, it was a B side of a, a single, I think, and I was like, "Oh, it's, I think Steve plays on this song that's sort of about him," <laughs> and it's sort of an odd. That's nice. It's nice of you to actually play on a song that seems to be criticizing your ability to play on a song. Yeah, well, like I said, he would write his lyrics later a lot of times, so he wasn't screaming "Westy can't drum" when <laughs> when I was drumming it. <laughs> well, that's probably for the best, I would think. Uh, really, okay. Yeah, I might have might have been a little more awkward. <laughs> Because, A, he had, like, the classic big shoes to fill. <laughs> or little shoes. Little shoes with Velcro <laughs> pullovers in the case of Gary. like Gary's, drum, Gary's just, drumming does seem... It, he is one of the most distinctive drummers I've ever heard. He had a bit, He was a huge influence on me as a drummer. Well, I mean, you know, Gary is, is basically, like, um, at his absolute best. He was... Which was pretty exceptional. He was like in the same class as Keith Moon. I mean, well, the Lottery Domestic EP in particular is just mind blowing. The drumming is incredible. The guy's amazing. Yeah, the guy's amazing. Yeah, you know, just amazing. And like when he was in the band and he was on, I'd be like, I guess all I have to do is stand here and drink the drink beer. <laughs> yeah. This is... But keep in mind, there's a lot of times that he wasn't on. Now Steve West, who I've been really good friends with since I was 13. He was he was basically always on his game with two or three exceptions. He was on his game a lot more than I was, and but he was a more of a solid classic rock drummer. And for him to like actually go back and like work really hard and learn a lot of Gary's intricate drum parts was like not easy work for him. And he pulled it off, and he sure as hell like proved that he could drum. Like at least in my opinion, because like. When you're like, that's the thing. It's like Pavement always looked at the, you know, like the the guys, the pretty boys in the front row don't don't really realize it, but like, you know, the back line, which was the back line of the stage, was me and West. Okay, yeah, it's like a like a formation. Like Pavement is like as you mentioned like earlier when you started to analyze the lyrics to Stereo, like there are more like sports references in Pavement throughout our history, like lyrically and just like. Again, I mentioned, like, you know, a lot of this recording session was built around watching the Olympics and bowling. Yeah. And then even, like, Scrabble is, like, it's like competition. There was always competition in the band. There was always competition. It wasn't, like, the kind of competition, like, my girlfriend's cooler than yours or, like, whatever. But it was more, like, competition, like, no. Like, we're playing now. Like, this is a game. And, like, the same as, like, people don't realize that about bands, like, 
I don't other, I don't think other bands really had this ethic, but like we'd show up at like a festival, not necessarily Lollapalooza where we didn't have a chance, but like you'd show up at like Reading Festival or something and there'd be like nine bands playing on the bill and like throughout the history of pavement we had a Dutch sound man who's still a dear friend of all of ours, uh, named Remco Shout, and then Remco's a really good sound man. He was competitive about sound and like like you know, you kind of feel like you sort of had this mentality when you'd show up these European rock festivals that it was kind of like a battle of the bands because like that was something that happened. I, I don't know if they still have that, but that was a big deal before pavement existed. Like when I was in high school, like in the early eighties and in the seventies, of course, like, like seven bands would show up and you'd get to play for 10 minutes. Like if you won, then like you got like, your seven inch put up by a local label. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do, you, do you remember this era? Oh, they, they still happen. They have them here in, in, I'm calling you from Guelph. They have them to get into like the local big music festival. Exactly. And they, so like, yeah, we had that approach, even though, even after we were like, you know, had been established and made records. Right. <laughs> like, a, a, and it was, like an athletic competition. Sounds, but yeah. Like, that's the only way that we really knew how to, uh, pro, at least from my standpoint, like I'd been in a lot more athletic competitions. I've been in, it did in a band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's that element as well, as corny as that sounds. And, like, we were failures at sports. Like, maybe we got to get them back at music a little bit. Like, <laughs> like we all we all tried to play sports. And, like, Malcolmus is probably the best athlete in the band. But Steve West and I were pretty good. And mm. Eibold was a hell of a skateboarder. And Scott played soccer. And whatever. Like, I don't mean to sound, we were, you know, I guess we were just a bunch of dumb jocks. to Passat Dream. This is another Spiral Stairs song. Do you have any particular perspective on Passat Dream in terms of uh, even what uh, either what Scott was going for uh, in terms of lyrics or, or your your participation in playing on this song, recording it? I think that that's, again, another time where he was kind of poking fun at consumerism. Uh, Passat is a certain type of car, and I do remember him saying they're great cars. So I think he's kind of picking up on Unlike consumerism, in a way, and uh, poking fun at that. Yeah. Was there anything about the song itself, like the structure or playing on it, that you want to highlight? No, same thing. Uh, Pretty much he would groove, and uh, he'd start playing a riff, and I'd start playing along, and that that would be it, you know? Yeah. And then we'd build from there. These do these do stick out as I think two of his best songs. Uh, I don't know if you can be objective about that. All the songs, Scott songs are good. Hit the plane down kind of bugs me a little bit, but I I like my drumming on it, so uh, you know I like it. So yeah. Um, but you know when he he didn't write nearly as many as Stephen, but when he did, they were good solid solid songs. I know that he was a little bit more conscious of shopping than the rest of us. So. Um... Well, yeah, he's more, yeah, I talked he's, to I talked to Dan Behar about we were talking about Bright in the Corners for quite a long time on, when he was on the show, 
and because uh, I was asking him about some songs that seem to be wary of domesticity, wary of settling down. Uh, and I thought from Rattle by the Rush on, from Aoi Zowie, there seemed to be this, and it comes up here on this record too, this notion of like the mental energy you wasted on your wedding invitation. This kind of, I kind yeah. of, I, 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 I was talking to Dan about how I felt like Stephen and Scott and you guys were probably just grappling with that age of like, oh shit, like all these people that we are friends with are settling down and we're these wild rock and roll guys, you know? Uh, yeah, but the thing is, we were always really settled down. We we were never actually really wild. Like, even during All the Pavement, like, you know, we all had girlfriends and in some cases wives. And, like, that's the funny thing about, like, being in horse racing is a lot of people think, oh, you were in a band in your 20s. You must have been wild. Like, we actually weren't that wild. Like, yeah. Okay. We drank a lot of beer. No, we were actually very well behaved. Well, it's just my reading of Scott's songs here and Stephen's songs on some of the, some of the songs here are are kind of making. It seems like it's making fun of conventional life a little bit. Well, and, sure, yeah, no, absolutely. Like, yeah. Don't you do that on a daily basis? Yeah, I guess we all do. Yes, we all do. So, like, yeah, that's all we were really doing, you know. Like, I heard what you said. Leaders are dead They're robbing the skies I can hear their followers cry Starlings in the slip stream of Starlings in the slip stream of Starlings of the Slipstream, another kind of weird one. I I have a version of this on an early bootleg, I think, uh, called uh, Stuff Up the Cracks. It could have happened. I, I don't think we did, though. We would practice some in New York at my loft there, so maybe he was coming up with it then um, before I moved down to Virginia. Um, but I don't remember playing that live before we had had it recorded and sussed out, but no, it's possible. I, I wonder if it dates back to Gary, even. 
Uh, I doubt that because no? that was pretty far. Okay. Um, from when you know there was a whole wowie zowie and the EP in between that and Crooked Rain, so that's like three years. Do you know this bootleg stuff up the cracks? Uh uh-uh. uh. Oh, okay, I bought it for like twenty bucks in nineteen ninety five, and uh, uh-huh. and it chronicles. It came out in ninety four, I think, and so right. it collects everything from yeah, like ninety one to ninety four. And there's a version, some version of this song that seems to be played or recorded off a boombox or something. Um, oh like well, a, maybe maybe it is something that he did a long time ago and and never really sussed it out till. Till then, yeah. Till right in the corners, yeah. It could have been. I mean, the thing is, when we would, I'd play Silver Jew stuff with he and David in New York in the loft, and Stephen would play riffs that ended up on pavement albums, um, and and things that he would play with David, and they would end up with Silver Jew stuff. So, yeah, I think he's he had a lot of ammunition in there, and it would come out over time period, and when he felt there was time. Do you have any perspective on this particular song uh, as it as it exists on Bright in the Corners? Uh, it's a beautiful song. It is. A, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. That's a, is that the is that the extent of what you want to say? Is there anything you remember about pl- uh, recording it? No, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a blur. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry to keep prodding you, but you never uh, there's been a couple of occasions where I prodded and you're like, "Actually, I do have a thing to say about that, and I'm going to say it, and that's what I'm going for. You know, I kind of want yeah. little stories. Yeah, you got to dig it out of them. I'm trying. I'm doing my best. Yeah. You're being yeah. you're being very kind about it. So I use a slipstream. Like the great thing about that song was I actually owned a racehorse at the time called Steinland's Promise, and he was slow, like a lot of racehorses that I've owned. And um, I'd always change the lyrics to Steinland's in the slipstream, hmm. and um, I love that song. thought that like you've got an end an album properly yeah and i think fillmore jive did that for sure and i'm not sure what the last song is on wowie zowie uh it's western homes i think yeah so that wasn't a proper finisher but like finn is like (laughs) yeah finn finn was like a it was just just like in your classic like you know european stylish european movie sense when like the movie's finally over and it says you know finn on the screen mm. like um that's what that song was we're at the last song on the record which is called fin uh or finn <laughs> uh and uh this uh, bob 
speaks very highly of this song. He thinks this is an excellent album closing song. Do you have any take on on this song? Yeah, I think that's another one where he and I play together, and it's it is slow, methodic, and very straightforward. Um, but it has that mood, kind of like what you were saying. It's kind of a dark mood, but it's kind of like Starlings has that uplifting. You know, I haven't listened to the album in a long time, so I'm trying to, yeah. you know, I'm kind of reflecting through your reflections and thinking, oh, yeah, maybe there was a lot of spy stuff going on. And... <laughs> Steven at the time had become really good friends with Justine Frischman from Elastica. Mm-hmm. And, like, I think there's, like, a lot of the lyrics from that actually are sort of based on their friendship and her father was a really famous architect and he might have he might have actually like designed some prisons in england but that again that's guesswork on my part when you're working with someone like david or steven who i would argue are two of the greatest you know rock lyricists really ever uh for my money do you spend time with their words do you spend time like you're playing with them but do you spend time afterwards just sort of trying to decipher what they're what they're going after no I, I try not to. Uh, maybe that's why I'm uh, easy to be around. Um, you know, like I said, you kind of tease them on a phrase or something. Yeah. Um, and make fun of it, but uh, in, a, in a good way. Um, you know, I think a lot of it is they're both wordsmiths and uh, tune smiths. And uh, it doesn't necessarily... This, I think David really thinks a whole lot about what he's saying and how he's saying it and how it comes across he's a poet and, and Stephen is more off the cuff but he's got a huge gift of just being able to blurt it out so yeah. and he's been doing it forever well both of them have but for me when i try to do that sometimes it's a good and sometimes it's not but they've got so much more you know their spectrum is so much i'm more of a pun guy in my songs i can I'm good at doing funny lyrics and having a sense of sarcasm or something to it. And they're much more cerebral and smart. We get to we get to Kerner's right. Yeah. So we've got these songs, and like we know some of the songs are good. Like we're anxious to, you know, just like every pavement recording session. And then so Malchus, like during this period, like was we were kind of like less and less like a noisy thing, and less and less like a punky thing, and like steering away from Wowie Zowie into like making kind of like rock songs because we always just wanted just like every other band you just want to be you don't want to be classified you want to be treated as a rock band sure because that's like you know it's like no we, we play rock and roll like you know like like so you meet somebody on a plane they say oh you're in a band like what kind of music you play then you don't want to like say you know start trying to have to explain genres to them you just like say we're a rock band a lot of college kids like us <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, that's like what you're doing. Like, you meet a complete stranger, and like they see you, like, like, hey, what do you do? You know, like, what you know, you know, how comfortable playing conversations are. It yeah. can be, but sure, yeah. 
So, you know, it's just like we're just trying to be a rock band. Does this record stick out for you uh, as a particularly great pavement album, or do you, do you view them all the same? Uh, does, this, does, does it actually stick out? It sticks out. They're all different to me, and they all have their own charm to them. They're all were fun to work on and get across. The last one was a little bit harder because we were all getting ready to break up. But um, that one I like a lot because we do sound really good on it. Yeah, but you know, some of that is the. Some people will say, "Well, yeah, you, the soul's not as much in that album," and so they miss that part. But I look at it as each album being different, so you come away with something, and they're each original, so it's a good evolution. I mean, to me, like "Transport" is a range is one of my favorite pavement songs, Absolutely. and yeah. um, "Type Slowly" to me is like never did pavement sound more like Led Zeppelin than then. And like I think that that at this point pavement could actually like jam. So and that's what where Wowie Zowie led us. Like we could actually like find the groove on songs and like jam them out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. yeah, and I think that's why we appeal to like fish and like you know, bands like that, like even like Wilco, like a lot of bands that have like, you know, covered us and played way better versions of our songs than we ever could even like you know nickel creek of course eventually did spit on a stranger which was a song which had not been created until the build-up for the terror twilight record Hmm. but um it was like we were more like we were like a real rock band so we could play like we could go to pukul pop or we could go to lowlands and we could actually like go into a tent and play for four thousand people at midnight and like we could be more than just like playing songs in the three minute form like stereo and shady lane we could actually jam out songs like type slowly did you have a sense that the band might be winding down after that record was done or after touring that record was done um after um after bright in the corners um yeah i mean you could tell that steven was trying to i think we were all getting worn out yeah for sure. Um, but, you know, we were always like that. The pavement was never any expectations from one album to the next. So it was just like, okay, we're done touring now. Let's take a break and we'll see what happens. Mm. Okay. So uh, to me, uh, to everyone, it was kind of like we could be stay together forever. We could not. But we knew it wasn't going to be forever. But, but it, so it was very much like uh, sort of like Wowie Zowie in a lot of ways, like, it's when we'd reached this point where we're actually like a good live band after years of having a reputation of being kind of shoddy and unpredictable live. There's a, a news story, I think a, a month or two ago that um, I think it was Scott suggested you guys might be back uh, for an anniversary something or other. I think he said 2019. Do you, do you know what I'm referring to? Um, yes, the, a guy at work, uh, this uh, Mexican guy came up to me and said, ah, you are going to tour again. I read it on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> so that's about all I've heard. You haven't had a conversation together? No, no. I saw Scott perform this summer, uh, and I played a little bit with some of his songs up on stage and, uh. Um, in North Carolina when he came through. It was a lot of fun, but we did not talk about reforming that I can remember, but it was a long night. Yeah. Would, would you, I mean, personally, would you like to play in pavement again? 
Sure. I had a great time when I was doing it, and the reunion went really well, so I'd be excited and enthusiastic to do it again for a limited time, you know, like we did last time, more or less. Do you think it's time as a creative entity is, is I mean, it's obviously past. You, you don't see that happening. Yeah, you know, to like make new music. Sure. Um, I doubt that's going to happen. I would seriously doubt that's going to happen because, you know, you do a thing in a certain time and you have the groove and everything. And that's, that's past. That was the past. And, and you got to let that be. And I think it's great to play the old songs and play them with, you know, uh, soul and feeling and not have it be just the same songs every night and, you know, not do it too much where it becomes boring and, you know, everybody's tearing each other's hair out. So, I think what we did in 2010 was very successful on all sides, and I'd be up for doing that again. We actually like could be a really good rock band, which was a major step forward for us because for many years, mostly due to like the fact that we were generally unprepared and that we'd actually like find our chops on tour, we actually could like show up there and be like kind of formidable and hold our own as a rock band and I, th- I feel like bright in the corners might like be the the record that sort of shows that the most Special thanks again to Bob Nastanovich and Steve West of Pavement for talking about Brighten the Corners on this, the 373rd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One podcast network and is available on almost every single podcast platform that you can fathom. If you can't find an episode or you want to learn more about me or sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control with Vishkana on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Vishcreative, or follow me at Vishkana. Listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time around the world at CFRU.ca or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Also, please visit Patreon.com slash Creative Control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going. This episode would not be possible without our sponsors. I'd like to shout them out right now. Pizza Trocadero, whom you can call for pickup or delivery within the city limits of Guelph. Try them at 519-829-2444 or check them out at trocaderoguelph.ca. The Bookshelf, an independently owned bookstore, bar, music venue, and movie theater located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. Learn more about them at bookshelf.ca. Planet Bean, freshly roasted, fair trade, certified organic coffee. More information about them, planetbeancoffee.com. And Granddad's Donuts, located at 574 James Street North in Hamilton, Ontario. Amazing donuts. Visit granddads.ca. More information about them. That's it for this lengthy historical 
episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I learned a lot about one of my favorite records of all time. Again, there's many more episodes of this show. Go check them out. If you're if you're new to the show, check them out. Steve's been on. Stephen Malcolmus has been on the show. Bob Nastanovich has been on the show. That the other pavement-related conversations have come up, as I mentioned at one point. So yeah, listen to the show. Please rate and review the show wherever you listen to the show and give it a nice rating and review. Share the show. Tell your friends about the show. Download episodes, of course. Subscribe to the show and all those things. That's it for me. I will talk to you very soon. Goodbye for now. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.